Today's reading is James chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and verses 14 to 17. It can be found on page 119 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there, or sit on the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can't such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The word of the Lord. you to pray with me as we begin. Our God of grace, as we come into this place, we come from different kinds of experiences, different life um, uh, life journeys, things that have happened in our lives, um, even this week, varies so widely, um, as we have gratitude and anger in the room today. One person is celebrating a life transition and the person right next to them is um, deeply frustrated over the what has felt like being stuck in a cul-de-sac for years on end. Some people come um, with mild frustrations, others come feeling anesthetized by the comforts and entertainments of life. Um, some people here this morning come just longing to have a little bit more, to have enough while others are drowning in plenty. And we come all truthfully looking to you in some way in this time. We're looking to you. And we all look honestly from the same place, the place of great need, if only we knew it. Because our, our hearts are more broken than we care to admit. Our actions, our lives, our thoughts 
are all more reflective of a mess than they are of something that's tidied up and perfect. And so we long for it to be true, as your story in Scripture says over and over again, that you make a covenant, that you make a, a lasting commitment in a relationship with broken and failed lives with us, and you begin to call us your children, unnaturally so, you invite us in in an adoption that we would have full status as your children, beloved, and set right once again to serve you in this world. Would you please meet us with that kind of grace, whether we come angry, frustrated, happy, sad, whatever the case may be, meet us with the same grace and help it to sink in, help it to transform. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we asked the question, what, what is an action you would say is unmistakably spiritual? Um, and that's sort of an evaluation type question, right? That's a, we're not always comfortable with that kind of question. It, it suggests there might be better things and less better things. And... Um, and we read, we just read, Mark read from this passage that says, um, faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. What good is it to claim you have faith but have no deeds? It's a pretty strong judgment statement about one kind of faith versus another. One kind of spiritual um, activity versus another. So here's some of the answers from last week. What is an action that you would say is unmistakably spiritual? Someone said breathing, because in Hebrew... The word breath is the same as spirit. They're used interchangeably. Someone else said, um, this is a subjective question because what's spiritual in one person's life is false spirituality in another person's life. Someone else said, an open, loving, receptive silence. That's a spiritual activity. Someone else said, uh, praying for someone with whom you're angry unmistakably spiritual actions. So I was, uh, maybe you've had this experience where someone will t who, who doesn't um, maybe attend a church or they say, I'm not religious, but they'll say um, some comment about what they experience as deeply spiritual. Have you ever had this? Where someone talks about nature maybe or something. You know, that, so there's some comment of an experience of spirituality that um, is not connected to religion. And I found that there's some of this going on even in the surfing community. Have you heard of this? Are any surfers in the house? Anybody surf? So this is um, an editor of a, of a surfing magazine said this. I can spend... Whoa. About that. We're dealing with a new microphone this week. So. Actually, an old microphone. Next week, we'll have the new one. So I could spend literally hours every day reading mail about people who claim surfing as a salvation. This is an editor of a magazine. So this sparked a debate here in the hallowed halls of serfdom. Could surfing be a bona fide religion? Is surfing a religion? World champion surfer Kelly Slater, um, he says that the sport, this is what he says, surfing is my religion if I have one. The barrel, or for you novices or laypersons out there, is the hollow of the breaking wave, the barrel. The barrel is really the ultimate ride for any surfer. It's the eye of the storm. Some guys say it's like being in the womb. All right. Spirituality, spiritual experience. Um, 
I think what people are saying when they have this kind of comment is they're saying they're in an experiential kind of place where they are connecting with uh, what feels divine, what feels bigger than themselves, which feels like almost another realm. Maybe it's a, a deeply psychic, emotional kind of experience. And you might expect, hey, I'm the guy talking from the Bible today in a church, and so I represent religion, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why that's all terrible and wrong. Um, I, I'm not going to. Um, because I think it's basically like someone saying, I've been in touch with something outside of myself, and it happened when I opened that particular door, and I seem to be in, you know, in, in fill in the blank, what door that was. Was it laughter? Was it really good food or friendship? Was it sex? Or was it um, going to a Grateful Dead concert? Um, or all of the above? And, um, what, you know, so, so I opened this door, I had this experience, and so Christianity's big idea is this. And you might get a sense of, of like what we just read from James is in a whole different category than just someone saying, oh, I, I had a good experience in the barrel of a wave, therefore, you know, I, I have, that was a good spiritual moment. The Christianity, its big idea is that that vague experience of something unnamed behind that veil that you maybe got a little crack open into to see that is something, that's a, there's actually a knowable being. And that knowable being reveals himself to us. It's a, it's a big break. It's a big opening from what I think most people who would just have a vague spirituality would hold to. And it opens things up quite substantially to say there's a selfhood, there's a, there's a personality on the other side of that vagueness that you experience. And so basically what Christianity has that a lot of that sort of vague spirituality might have is it has specificity. Christians actually operate in the realm of specificity. Um, they're comfortable in this realm because, because the story of God gets revealed as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right there. That's such a, such a mantra of, of the Old Testament of ancient Israel. It's specific. There's a name to this God. There's actions attached to this God. A little bit later in the service, we'll have the chance to say something that's loaded with the specifics. It's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It goes on and on and on. And Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Specific, specific, specific. And so Christians aren't, are comfortable in this realm, sometimes too comfortable, and sometimes take it way too far, obviously. Stories abound in this room if, if we would share them of Christians going way too far with the specificity and getting into what's right, what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong, what's better, what's worse, and taking it way too far. But Christians aren't just ridiculous, archaic traditionalists who just love to make these kind of distinctions. It's just that they believe in a specificity. They were comfortable in this realm of saying, God's knowable. God reveals himself. We get to find some specific things out about God. So the first thing Christianity does in your life, if you're connecting with it, opening yourself up to it, or if it's opening up to your friends, is a lot of times, especially in our culture, is it just brings you into the realm of saying, what if that experience where that door was opening, what if, what if when you're, I don't know if surfers do it, riding through the barrel of the wave, what if that whisper of the divine that you heard, what if there's a voice on the other end? It's calling your name. What if, there's a per what if there's a personality? 
What if there's a personal God on the other end of that voice? It just kind of pushes you, nudges you out into, out of the vagueness into specific. It can be an, inc- you know, as you follow through on that, the idea of knowing a specific, you know, start with love, that's a specific trait, a loving God. And then there's this whole history of loving actions. It's finding those specific things out. It can be an incredibly rewarding adventure to step out from the vagueness into the specificity. And for you Bible nerds out there, if you like the Bible and know a lot of the stories, think about when Paul is giving a sermon in Athens, and he, his hook into this culture is he finds a, an inscription on one of their idols that says, to an unknown God. And so he starts out his message saying, what is unknown to you, I am now going to pack with meaning and specificity. I'm going to make clear. I'm going to proclaim to you, he says. Okay, so I got the specificity out of the way. I think every time I turn down like this, it gets a little weird. Okay. Now imagine that you've, one day you get a phone call and it's your twin. And you say, I don't have a twin. Exactly. <laughs> I know, it feels like a break from what we were just talking about, but just follow me. So you get a phone call and it's your twin. And you say, okay, I have a twin. What's next? What do we do? I have, you know... There's this whole other relationship going on that I didn't know existed, and now it begins to, I have to figure this out. How do we go about this? What do we do? Okay, where do you live? Do, do we meet? What's our relationship like? We're, you know, we, we are, we do have a relationship, and yet we haven't. And so how, you have to start to build some specifics and find some things out. That's exactly what it's like as, you're, as that door opens up to the specific God, as you begin to start to say, okay, well, well now what? How do we progress, and the rest of my life is potentially affected by this? How do we progress with this relationship? And what the Bible uh, invites you to consider right off the bat, in your heart and your life, if you look hard enough, will be filled with your own examples, but the Bible invites you to consider that you start off in this relationship now, as you wake up to it, you're waking up to, well, uh, an imperfect relationship, a broken relationship. Um, deteriorated relationship. I heard, it, I heard a story, and maybe you heard it if you listen to some of the same radio program podcasts I do. I think I heard it on Radio Lab, where this, this, um, this woman who was married woke up from, after an accident. When she woke up, she had amnesia, and she looked across the room at her husband, and she was just overjoyed and in love with him and glad that he was there for her. Um, the problem was... Um, she was forgetting and she was going back in time mentally because she was forgetting that the last two years their relationship had completely deteriorated. And, um, you know, it, it had been really good and positive back then, but now, you know, this, they've had, they had a child together. So, of course, he's there as she's recovering, he's in the room, but she's looking at him from the eyes of two, three years ago, and he's looking with all the knowledge of the last two years of deterioration. He's not in that same place. <laughs> fascinating concept. That's, that's what it's like for us in our relationship with God. In many ways, we just think, um, hey, what's the problem? Hey, we're good, right? Me and God, we're fine. And the Bible can invite you to say, no, there's this, let's, let's learn about this pattern of deterioration that's been at work. There's trouble in a relationship. And um, our gut reaction is to say, can't we just go back in time? You know, if I'm in this mode, I see it like this. Can't you? Just can't God? Can't you just go back in time? Can't I just do something? And so naturally, what our um, as we 
engage in this specific God and the specificity of this God, we, um, we do try to. We try to patch things up and fix things up, and can, can we make it good? And we assume that's the route with God, and God actually interrupts us and says, you can't. You're not capable of patching it up to that degree. It's just not in your power. You can't dial back and turn back the clock. And in many ways, that's the story. There's a sense in which there's something lost if you follow the biblical narrative. That back in time is kind of like that garden in Adam and Eve before sin came. And, it's, and, and so this whole story of the Bible is sort of that dilemma of can we get back in time? God says, no, you can't. You can't do that. And so he does. And he's the most offended one in the partner of this deterioration. And he, on himself, he takes it on himself and decides he's going to get us back to how it was before. Um, and he does it in a way that takes his own sacrifice, takes the weight on his shoulders, and he gets us there. Now, here's what James, in the reading we just read, wants you to see. If this is our relationship with God, this deteriorated thing that we've, we've deteriorated, God refuses to treat us as we deserve, and he insists on elevating us in the relationship to something and to a status and to a place that we don't earn and we can't earn and we can't live up to in the past or the future. He insists on making it right, without us having to bear the cost. He sees, as the Bible would say, he sees our best righteousness as filthy rags. So we come to God, with, if you'd go with that clothing analogy, we come to God um, in rag, tattered rags. We're a mess. We're unfit to be around. We're, in a sense, we're, we're so poorly clothed, that it's like you avert your eyes, like, I shouldn't be seeing this. God puts on the finest garments. He reclothes us with Christ's righteousness so that we are not only acceptable in his presence, he proactively meets us, clothes us, and brings us into the most welcome seat in his house. He brings us in, he gives us a seat at the table, the best seat in the house, Keep that in mind. That's God's interaction with you. And then, and then hear this. Make sure I read the right part. S- James says, Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So just like we found out last week with with James as he writes, James believes in illustrating and acting out the very relationship that you have with God. If If God with you has proactively moved towards you, clothed you, welcomed you, elevated your status immediately without any questions... And then you turn around to those around you, and you're saying, oh, okay, you deserve, oh, hey, come here. Oh, you, oh, go, go over there. And if that's your approach to life, James wants you to stop and go, huh. 
you know, where, where, there's a disconnect somewhere. Where is the disconnect? Have you, have you actually encountered this God? Or have you maybe turned the, the God thing or the church thing into sort of a game where you just try to do a lot of good stuff and try to look good for others? Maybe that's one of the ways. Or maybe it's just you're just close, but it's never clicked. You've never encountered God that way. Yes, that is like me with God. I'm a mess. And he, wow, this is so amazing. And he meets me and clothes me. Maybe you've never encountered that deeply and richly. And it's time. It's time to pray for that to happen. It's time to reflect on it. Time to go to scripture and dig deep. Either way, James's point is grace leaks out. You get it in you, and it can't help but leak out. Some people do good things out of all kinds of reasons. Because of guilt, because someone taught them how to do good things, because someone did good things to them. And that's all fine, and James isn't necessarily talking about that. But what James is talking about is that in a Christian, someone who's encountered the grace of God, the relationship repair of God, grace will leak out. Grace will leak out. At the very least, you'll question when you do it, when you show favoritism, or when you treat someone poorly because it looks like that's what they deserve. At the very least, you'll, you'll, something will go off in your brain afterwards. You know, that's usually where it starts. Is like you begin. It's, it takes a while. To, wait a second. Oh, if I, that's me and God, then how is that happening on this plane? That doesn't line up. And then, and then it begins to loop through over and over in your life. Let me just give you one example of someone, a couple, and then we'll be done. A, a couple who had this sort of like, like wait a second moment. Um, this is a quote from actually. There's this. There's this organization within the broader church that we're a part of called the Christian Reformed Church of North America. And they, they have a world relief uh, part of our organization. And they have a disaster relief services department. So this is like an earthquake, a tsunami happens, disaster teams go. There's volunteers who are kind of on the list who go and help out. So this is from a quote from one of the volunteers. He says, Nancy and I have been volunteering since 2006, and each year we give three weeks of our time to help others through World Renew DRS, Disaster Relief Services. Why? I think this is very insightful. Then this is where they maybe have that aha moment. We found that sightseeing, visiting historical sites, bike rides, and walking the beaches were all enjoyable activities, but they left us a bit empty and longing for more meaning. As one Christian song says, I refuse to do nothing. If by my action I can encourage someone in their faith or point someone uh, to belief in Christ, then I hope, or then I have put my own faith to work as the, in the way that the Apostle James mentioned when he said, and this is this own person's uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek interpretation, how are you going to prove your faith if you don't show it by what you do? That's Mark Fossey, a world-renewed DRS volunteer. So James is saying, if you have faith, if you have a connection to God, but you don't act it out, and it's not illustrated somewhere, then there's a short circuit somewhere in your life. If you can wake up in the morning and read the newspaper and know about the layers and loads of hurt and disaster and and just um, harm that exists in our world and need that exists all around you, but you organize all of your free moments towards ignoring those needs. There's a sense in which somebody, somewhere along the line, needs to have um, 
look you in the eye and have a pretty hard conversation about where, where's the disconnect? Because true faith in the Bible, as the Bible tells us about it, true faith is your own self-acknowledgement of my life was in great need of rescue. My life, in many ways, should and could be viewed as disastrous. <laughs> my relationship with God was a disaster. There was a relief operation, and God rescued. God brought relief. God is the disaster relief services in my life. And so you can't help but become alert to the opportunities around you to bring relief and rescue to the needs around you. Let's pray. God of grace, as we consider this message, um, you have showered the most unlikely compassion upon our lives. Would you please help each of us to encounter it? Help many of us to encounter it. Help us to have a season at City Life Church of lavish encountering of your surprising, unlikely, lavish compassion. And then help it to leak out into the world around us, into our lives in unpredictable ways. Through your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.